Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. Welcome back for the review of Stargate SG-1 Season 1 Episode 5, named The Broca Divide, written by Jonathan Glasner and directed by William Garrity. The original air date was August 15th, 1997. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM line roaring. This episode comes right after the previous episode, Emancipation, that some of you may or may not have been all that familiar with, seeing that apparently during reruns, they tend to skip this episode. Partially because of that, but also mainly that the topics touched upon in that episode kind of made that podcast review episode rather longer, quite a bit longer than the actual episode entails. But hey, in my opinion, it was warranted. However, after that heavy deep dive, all things dark, twisty, and misogynistic, luckily we have now arrived at an episode that is once again full of the funny interactions and the banter that made me absolutely love this television series. Though there is a warning in this episode for a rape that, again, gets touched upon not exactly with consent. A little less of, well, that just happens, would have been advisable, preferred. Frankly, was necessary, in my opinion. Because not only were they treating it like, well, that's just human nature. It implies something that is very prevalent, unfortunately, in the society. And shockingly even emphasized by certain evolutionary psychologists, that is a very toxic narrative that I think deserves and needs to be talked about. And again, yes, I know it's a television series and not an after-school special, but still, it's a sensitive topic. So be advised, this topic will be discussed a more length in my episode. What I loved about this episode is that it fit very firmly in the Stargate franchise. We are really back at Stargate Command, Stargate Travel, the dangers and the beauty of Stargate Travel, Tilk being a Jaffa and thus having a different anatomy than the rest of us. Plus, though she is shockingly, I never noticed that before, not named in this episode, we are introduced to Dr. Janet Frazier, played by Toa Rotary, which such a great character and just a delight. I was always very happy to have her, whether she sticks around for a while but we're getting ahead of ourselves and you know let's get to reviewing this particular episode start the episode back at the SGC, right back to where we previously left off with the whole gold storyline. We're still trying to find Apophis to hopefully save Share and Skara. They seem to have extrapolated the possible location of where Apophis and thus Skara and Share went after leaving Chulak, which has now been designated P3X797, because yeah, the naming thing is never gonna get a little easier. But yes, everyone agrees why the designations are as they are and yada yada yada, get used to it, just moving on. Apparently, they are going to be sent to a planet where the MELP, which is just a big giant robot on wheels, all kinds of technology attached to it, apart from apparently night vision, 
because General Hammond says it's dark on the other side, the lights were destroyed upon arrival, we don't really know why, but, you know, because we have no idea where we're sending you, we have asked SG-3, the team strictly made up of marines, to go with you. There's a little banter back and forth about who's gonna cover whose asses. Daniel's particularly the one that would like to have the marines go first, which, I mean, I can't blame him. They are literally sending them into the dark unknown, possibly where, you know, Apophis might be waiting on the other side. Again, at the gate, have the same discussion, who is gonna go first, SG-1 or SG-3. O'Neill now takes the time to explain to Daniel why he's volunteering them to go first, because if the marines see glowing eyes, they're gonna shoot first and ask questions never, and those glowing eyes might now belong to Shari or Skara. Immediately it makes Daniel go like, okay, so SG-1 is gonna go first. To not send them completely into the dark with no means of identifying their surroundings, they are given night vision goggles, which I always love this. There were a question that the audience might have is answered by one of the characters. O'Neill comments, why doesn't the Malp have one of these? And you know, valid. Because yeah, you got this whole big ass giant robot that has all the kind of nifties and technological gadgets and whatnot, but it can't see in the dark. Upgrade needed. What I note now is that everyone is wearing helmets, where O'Neill is just wearing a baseball cap. Everyone is in helmets, except O'Neill. He's cool. He wears a baseball cap. I mean, come on, people. Even Tilk is wearing the helmet. There's something happens that's only actually explained why that was relevant in later episodes. SG3 is gonna follow SG1 after a 10 count, and we see Colonel Makepeace, the leader of SG3, walk up the ramp and stick his rifle through the event horizon as he starts to count. It isn't explained in this episode, but in later episodes, we learn that to keep the gate open after stepping through, as long as someone is sticking something, animate or inanimate, through the event horizon, the gate, at least for a while, can close. We later discovered that there is actually an absolute cutoff point, but that is all in that other episode that we will talk about later. Next, we see SG-1 arriving on the planet, and for the first time now, I noticed that there's no more rumbling tumbling down the steps as they arrive on the other side. They're not very cold anymore. It's now just like walking through a door. What I like is that the director has intermittently made us watch the team and also give us night goggles so that we can also see what they're supposedly seeing. So that really makes it feel like you're right there with the team. Nice touch. You see a little movement, but you can't really tell what's happening. And then suddenly they get attacked by cavemen. SG-3 arrives and saves the day. After this, the introduction song comes on, and I always love it that the introduction song really amps you up and gets you all pumped. While exploring, they come across a group of prehistoric-like cave people. Though Daniel says they're clearly not Homo sapien, they look a little Homo erectus, a little Australopithecus. In other words, he don't know. Carter spots a female. She looks homo sapien. And this is where the rape thing comes in. In addition to more delicate facial features, the clothes are a dead giveaway that this woman is clearly not prehistoric cavemeny. It's quite obvious that the man intends to rape her, and she tries to fight him off and get away from him. I'm actually kind of shocked that they let that particular image in, considering how much they tiptoed around the whole abusing women in the previous episode. Carter wants to, quite understandably, stop the caveman from raping the woman. Though Daniel, according to him, and thus one presumes his many PhDs, responds with, No, that is how our prehistoric ancestors most likely had sex. Forcibly. As well as asserting the assumption, the strongest male gets the female survival of the fittest. And for someone who's studied psychology, who's learned the whole evolutionary yada 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 about the whole survival of the fittest, all that jazz. That particular bit now irked me. 
Let me explain why. In just a few short sentences, Daniel makes several comments that so very clearly displays how tainted his ideology is by the toxic narratives of the patriarchal viewpoint that I just need to take a few minutes here to address them, explain why they are so toxic, not importantly wrong, and a very unfortunate common misconception of scientific theories that have become part of pop culture that has taken on a life of its own and therefore gets used by, rather disturbingly, toxic masculinity endorsing people, hashtag not all men, as an excuse for violent, abusive behavior specifically towards women. Plus, it completely misrepresents what survival of the fittest stands for. So those were two not unimportant topics that I wanted to address in this podcast episode because this, yes, is from the 90s, but this is also a viewpoint that is still very much alive and present today. For example, narratives such as these are the main reason why Roe v. Wade got overturned. Also, on this side of the pond, it has again become a subject of discussion because a world where a woman has autonomy over her own body is still an inconceivable concept. So yeah, these are topics that are still very relevant today. Educations such as these, it's so very important to address the toxic narrative that is being touched upon and note the extent with which patriarchal narrative has basically brainwashed us all and how important it is for us to challenge those beliefs and to replace them with healthier and more importantly, more accurate assessment of what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Okay. So let's start out with him saying our prehistorical ancestors often had sex forcibly, as claiming that rape unequivocally is part of human nature. Cannot stress this enough. That is an assumption we all know what happens when you assume that is not based on any kind of scientific fact because there is no scientific way, bar a fucking time machine, to uncover how they had sex, whether there was consent or not. Just look at today how many people have trouble proving they were raped. And somehow y'all are capable from fossilized bones to tell whether a woman or not gave consent? Neat trick! This, once again, is a way for them to excuse, to gaslight us into believing that boys will be boys and that rape is just part of human nature. That's because it's a part of us. On some level, it has to be deemed acceptable. What this toxic narrative does is gaslight us into believing that men are just not to be held accountable for their actions because of their hormones. And that notion, on occasion, still breaks my brain. And let me tell you why. Where, when a woman is accused of being hormonal, you should just, by all means, not take her seriously because she is clearly being unreasonable and hysterical. And for those not in the know, the diagnosis hysteria was given to women when men thought that they were being unreasonable and hormonal. They locked women up in the insane asylums for that. A happy little fun fun fact. They started to treat at a certain point hysteria by stimulating the pelvic region aka helping women to orgasm and thus the first vibrator was created. Now that is what I call a silver lining try to apply the same logic to when men become a little hormonal or, or how I like to refer to it as testy. He's just not in control of himself and we should excuse what he does. That narrative is so deeply ingrained in all of us. What this then now does excuses men for their violent and dysfunctional sexual behavior by stating that men are biologically programmed to rape women. That, my friends, is excusing rape culture, feeding rape culture. An exemplary 
misconception that frames rape culture to this day. And so very importantly, it is bullshit. There is just no possible way that there is a part of our DNA that programs us to rape. It has to do with behavior. Behavior is subjected to more than just your fucking DNA. It's subjected to, yes, part of your DNA, but also your psychological makeup and the societal structures that you are in. Or as we in the behavioral sciences call it, the biopsychosocial model. For more on this, check out my Instagram account, Let's Review with Leila and You, where I've posted promotional posts concerning this episode, as well as an image that comprehensively shows what this biopsychosocial model entails. To wrap this part up a little, to get even an inkling of what our prehistorical ancestors were up to, we could look at, for instance, the chimpanzees with which we share 99% of our DNA and how they structure their societies. And yes, rape also happens in the animal kingdom. However, that behavior is frowned upon and even condemned, sooner leading to one being shunned than that it is accepted. Just FYI. If anything, fun biological fact, from the study of primates with whom we share so much DNA, they have postulated the theory that prehistorical ancestors most likely all had sex with each other. As in, during their fertility cycle, they actually have sex with multiple males. One theory postulates that that increased the chance of her becoming pregnant during this particular fertility cycle. Another one states the women would have sex with multiple men so that men won't be able to identify which child is biologically theirs and which isn't. And they were all thus motivated to keep each other safe. Either way, making it a lot more of a community-centered polyamorous society instead of strictly monogamous relationships. And despite all of that, our society currently puts such emphasis on monogamy while, and that's the part that shits me, people on a large scale cheat. And then, as if adding insult to injury, he gets excused by that narrative of, well, it's part of human nature to not be in a monogamous relationship. And yes, to some extent, that is true, as in we've seemingly uncovered that life lifelong monogamy to one singular specific partner does appear to not be all that common and for us humans is actually considered somewhat recent development. However, that does not mean, though they try, to therefore disqualify monogamy in its entirety with something that goes against human nature. You cannot, with that argument, in good conscience, or knowing what the fuck you're talking about, claim a monogamous relationship, as in with one partner at a time, goes against human nature. You can have multiple partners throughout your lifetime. That is actually considered normal, healthy, and natural. Whereas in a lifelong commitment to a singular person, not so much. Just FYI. The ability or shall I say, choice, to be in a monogamous relationship is everything to do with behavior and a lot less to do with our biological presettings. If you want to do it justice, you could say that monogamy is a current modern societal construct used and abused to subjugate women. And please do note the usage of the term societal and not biological, because this argument is not, and never will it be, a valid argument against the hypocrisy misleading someone that you claim to love by sneaking around behind their back, by lying, cheating, placing appearance above truth, authenticity, that shit, that is human behavior that is a choice my peeps. So in conclusion, all of that, don't excuse you from being a lying, cheating asshole. That is a choice, not biology. Just FYI. That we have arrived as a society that holds monogamy up as that is the way it should be, while at the same time promoting cheating? Look 
about you make signals. If anything, that to me underwrites that we are not meant to be in monogamous, lifelong, committed relationships. The whole, what's it called, Madison? Here it's called Second Life, where it's actually encouraged to cheat on your partner. Why is that apparently accepted by society, but not that you are in a relationship with someone, be it casual, be it exclusive, be it married, that for whatever reason, and you don't owe anyone an explanation apart from the person that you are dating, why you're breaking up, instead society chooses to condemn and shame those who choose to leave a relationship that just no longer works for you. I'm not saying that you should bounce from partner to partner and just never ever do any self-reflecting or, or try to stay together, find some common ground, fall back in love again. By all means, I'm all for that. But I'm also of the opinion that if you fall out of love and you've tried to work on it and you just stay together for either the children or because society will frown upon you divorcing, please reconsider. I mean, in the olden days, we had the church that said, well, you just marry once. And if you're unhappy, well, <laughs> that's not my problem. You made your bed, now lie in it, literally. However, by all means, do cheat as long as just no one finds out. The fact that that became acceptable is just baffling to me. Why is that more acceptable than saying, you know what? This isn't working anymore. I want to be happy. I want you to be happy. Why chain ourselves to each other through life just to make other people happy? Because we apparently, seemingly, adhere to the societal pressure image of what a family is supposed to be. That has always baffled me. Plus, it don't work. It really doesn't. Because if you stay together for the children, all you do is model to your children how unhappy you are and how acceptable it is to hurt, to lie, and to cheat on the people that you claim supposedly love. Why, for the love of all things holy, is that preferred? Why would you put yourself, why would you put the person that you loved, at least at some point loved, through that? You're clearly unhappy. You don't have to be. Wouldn't you rather model to your children a happy, healthy life wherein you thrive, wherein your partner thrives? Isn't that what you're supposed to be modeling as a parent? I mean, my parents divorced when I was two. I've seen people stay together for the children, but that never turned out any better. If anything, it just damaged their kids in a different but similar fashion. But how can it ever be wrong for other people to see that you choose what is best for you? What makes you feel happy and nurtured and empowered and allows you to thrive? Isn't that what we should want for each other, for ourselves, for everyone? Well, shit. Now the episode is long again. Okay, on the last bit, survival of the fittest. This has become synonymous to pretty, strong, healthy. That actually is a common misconception. Not to mention, it doesn't convey what natural selection survival of the fittest actually is all about. And that is adaptability. And I could expand on this greatly, but I've already expanded so much. So I refer you to an awesome, awesome YouTube clip from Sprout's School that in a beautifully artistic, relatable, funny way, explains all kinds of psychological constructs. In this case, there is a video strictly about natural selection, survival of the fittest, and it explains how is actually to be interpreted. I'll also add the link to this video clip to my Instagram promotional posts on Let's Review with Leila and you. While the SG team keeps debating whether or not to intercede a woman getting raped, luckily, rape is stopped and suddenly rocks are being thrown at the gathering of cave people around the fire by figures seemingly shrouded in white cloth. Either way, the girl didn't get raped. Yay! So, no thanks to our friends. How disappointing. 
while held at gunpoint, our SG teams inspect these figures that turn out to be humans. Neil checks for a scar to see if they are gold, because thanks to Kowalski and Tilk, we've now learned that they enter through the back of the neck. But O'Neill clocks no scars, so he says, nope, they're human, lower your weapons, kids. Instructions are made, in perfect English, I might add, stating, My lord, we are the untouched. I am High Counselor Tuplo. They are under the assumption they must have pleased the gods and deemed them worthy of a return visit. They all kneel before the SG teams. Daniel then states that they better get used to being mistaken for gods, as to many, gate travel was strictly for the Goa'ulds posing as their gods. O'Neill wants none of this and says, Oh, for crying out loud, which is the first time that I clock him saying this, which becomes his signature phrase. Honestly, I'm still waiting for Tilk's first indeed. If you know, you know. And he quickly corrects him, saying, We're not gods, get up. The woman then whispers to the, as we now know, High, high Counselor Tuplo, Perhaps they wish us to treat them as mortals. Could it be a test? Sure, honey. Which just goes to show that no matter what they're gonna tell people, at first glance, they are still gonna believe that they are gods. I mean, I guess there are worse things, but yeah, could get annoying quickly. High Counselor Tuplo suggests, Let us take you to the Land of Light, which I think is a better name than P3X797 or what was it? Let's go with that. As G teams follow the untouched, and we see them emerge from the dark woods into literally a land of light. In the distance, we see a large necropolis, which feels a little greaky. After some funny banter about the rather extravagant decor, Daniel adds, it looks Minoan, which, FYI, just also noted to be the first civilization in Europe, on the Greek island of Crete. As they enter the Grand Council Room? Dining Room? I don't know. We see, guarded between two giant-ass bullheads, the woman that was about to get raped, and she is by High Chancellor Tuplo, identified as Melosha, his daughter. So it's a good thing that they interceded with their stones when they did. Talk about making a bad first impression. Oy. I'm sorry, we just stood around and watched your daughter get raped. Hmm. High Chancellor Tuplo expresses the hope that they rescued Melosha in time from the touched curse. As they explain, the people on the dark side of the planet are cursed by the Hilksha. Daniel seems to recognize the word from Abydos, but Tilk here helps him out by translating it to the gods of the underworld, evil gods. As the untouched continue to explain is that the unfortunate among them only need to be touched by a possessed person, thus clearly stating that this is something that is contagious, and they are then banished to the land of dark. The woman again tries to determine whether they are or aren't gods, and so the team learns that for at least a generation the Goa'ulds have not visited this planet, which for O'Neill is enough reason to pretty much pack up and leave, while Daniel is very passionate about wanting to explore the culture, because apparently the bull was very big in Minoan culture, but we've never uncovered why that is. But nope, O'Neill is our commanding officer, and when he says we're gonna go home, we're going home. Turning all of this into a short but <clears throat> sweet visit, I guess. When they return, General Hammond asks if they found anything of importance. O'Neill says, no sir, which Daniel follows up with, yes sir, we found a whole hell of a lot sir. Ooh, Daniel's feeling passionate, he's swearing. O'Neill then follows that statement up with, well, nothing of strategic importance, which, you know, technically true. General Hammond dismisses them and basically tells them, save it for the briefing. 
I love the way they filmed this scene. It seems that the briefing is apparently already ongoing. We enter the scene. Daniel get up old fashioned saying, I'm sorry, sir, but I have to protest. Allowing us to seemingly step in the middle of the briefing just when it's about to get good. As the camera moves back, we see that General Hammond is on its way to his seat, saying, let me guess, this the science versus military discussion again? Indicating that this is clearly an argument that Daniel's raised multiple occasions. Bless him. And Daniel continues, yes, this is a perfect example of my argument. We should have stayed longer to study Minoan culture, with Carter then adding, and primitive man. Daniel is so fucking passionate that he even interrupts General Hammond, which in the military is like a big no-no. Kind of helps to guess that he's not actually military. As Daniel describes it, on the dark side, they are pre-stone age in their development, and on the light side, they seem to be more bronze age in their development. And this is where the title of the episode comes in. He adds, where better to study the Broca divide? It's actually Carter that adds who this Pierre-Paul Broca was, and that he studied the size of our skulls and our intelligence to compare the divide in intelligence between earlier species of mankind, hence the term the Broca divide. And you would be surprised what you can learn from studying those things. I mean, to again elaborate a little further on that whole rape argument, they claim that they found evidence of both Neanderthal male with a homo sapien woman. So, okay, let's for the sake of argument assume that there was rape and that it was common among our prehistoric ancestors. How would you then explain that they also found extensive evidence of relations between homo sapien males with Neanderthal women? It is now stated that seeing that the homo sapiens were more evolved and more intelligent than the Neanderthals and thus could have easily wiped them out, if they indeed were deemed dangerous and a threat to their society, their women, the fact that they didn't would indicate that it wasn't a violent connection. The ample evidence that for the longest time Homo sapiens and Neanderthals lived side by side and they, the Homo sapiens didn't commit genocide and murder all the Neanderthals, as they were apparently so dangerous to all their women folk, would clearly suggest actually interwove their societies and lived side by side for a long time until the Neanderthal died out or was integrated into our Homo sapien DNA, if you really want to get technical. Because it has been identified that many of us, if not all of us, carry at least a little bit of Neanderthal DNA in our DNA sequence, especially if you're from a European or Asian background. Hashtag fun fact. Like, I did a little research into this, and apparently there is ample evidence that the Neanderthals had sex with the Homo sapiens, and thus there was a lot of swapping of all sorts of things, because apparently they gave us the HPV virus, we gave them herpes. Oh shit you not. You learn something new every day. Meanwhile, all of this is happening, we see the man that earlier gave Tilk the side-eye is again staring at him, but now with some clear added agitation. Finally, General Hammond gets a word in edgewise and says to Daniel Jackson, You're wasting your breath, Dr. Jackson, you've already won your argument. Seemingly, Daniel is still just in the heat of the moment, using all of his arguing skills instead of his listening skills, and he just barrels on. But I have to insist- Wait, what? I've already won? That part always makes me laugh because it is so much fun to see that happen. It's not that much fun to have that happen to you. But, but either way, that moment always just makes me laugh. Hammond explains that the president agrees with Daniel Jackson and Captain Carter and that the SG teams are in addition to exploring to find strategic military technology. They are also tasked to evaluate scientific and cultural value of each mission. Carter looks very hopeful. O'Neill looks constipated, saying again, oh, for crying out loud. 
Suddenly, the SG-3 member that's been given to the stink eye this entire time suddenly attacks him, saying, You wonder how that thing in your gut would like its neck ripped in half. Which beautifully indicates and highlights that clearly not everyone is so accepting of Tilk. And win-win, it fits perfectly into our storyline because the dude has crazy eyes. Why I love the character of Tilk so very much is that through all of this, he remains so completely fucking zen and calmly says, Please, release me, Lieutenant Johnson. As he tries to take a swing to Tilk's face, Tilk catches his fist in the palm of his hand as he swings Lieutenant Johnson around, plops his head on the desk, and all cool like says, General, I would prefer not to hurt this man. Oh, I love him. I really do. By now, Lieutenant Johnson has devolved into foaming at the mouth, and General Hammond orders him to be taken to the infirmary, put in restraints, yeah, to check him out. Next, we see the camera pan back, and we see that presumably because of everything that just transpired in front of their faces, everyone is on their feet, except O'Neill, who is seemingly just cool as a cucumber, still sitting there in his chair, just watching it all go down. Next, we see Daniel and Carter in the gate room, running diagnostics on the gate, but they get interrupted because of a commotion up in the conference room, where they see two men fighting, escalating in both of them falling through the window down into the gate room, killing at least one of them. So we see Carter call for help. We see that she's absentmindedly scratching at something on her neck. Uh-oh. Okay, so this next scene, I don't know how much time was between the previous scene and this scene, but this scene always cracks me up. We see that O'Neill's getting out of the shower and is interrupted by a partially dressed Carter looking all wild. She grabs him and roughly kisses him. And during this tussle, Carter says, I want you, making O'Neill respond with, Why? I mean, no! Carter clearly doesn't take no for an answer, and she says, well, don't you want me? And though he starts out with no, no, he does add, well, not like this. Which, I mean, heck, he just admitted that he has feelings for Carter. It seems to finally dawn on him that something is off. He rolls them over, pinning her to the ground, saying, it's about time that you saw a doctor, doctor. Next, we see her tied up in the infirmary, struggling against her restraints. So, yeah, clearly, Carter is infected. And this is where we finally meet Dr. Janet Fraser. Although she's never actually named in this episode. Hmm. She tells O'Neill that Carter and SG-3 members seem to be all affected, or at least infected, by whatever this is. The infected are either tied down in the infirmary or placed in isolation rooms. And while she takes O'Neill on the live-action tour of men's evolution, we see that all the infected people have a swelling of the brow ridge, additional hair growth. We've seen the men in their rooms slamming themselves against the wall, destroying the furniture. They've clearly all started acting rather primal. The doctor starts to tell O'Neill that low-level female primates tended to select mates based on who would give them the strongest offspring, saying, you should be flattered, which makes O'Neill sarcastically respond, oh yeah, I'm honored, while scratching at his back. Mm-hmm. Are those just love scratches left by Carter, or is he now also infected? Stay tuned. And yes, I know that this is meant to be a moment of levity, and I did actually laugh, but I can't help but also notice that what she is basically telling him is you should be flattered that you were assaulted because you are considered biologically to be a fine specimen. Again, you see that they lead into that whole survival of the fittest pop psychology narrative of being basically reprogrammed into human nature. Trying to imply that he is a biologically fan specimen. Isn't the base full of younger, more virile men? No offense, just, you know, saying. Plus, if she wanted to go for status instead of virility, sorry, there's just no other way to call that, wouldn't she have gone for General Hammond being top dog and all? Clearly what happened was is she was already attracted to him before all of this happened and now she was just extra extra horny. That's basically leaning into that misconception of what survival of the fittest actually means. Again.
As we soon discover, yes, O'Neill now too is infected. Which we learn when O'Neill suddenly gets all territorial about Carter, which Daniel infers about her well-being, and he just starts to wail on Daniel. In the infirmary, Daniel and Tilk get blood taken, and, and as Dr. Fraser explains, we're dealing with a parasitical virus that feeds on all kinds of neurochemical shizzle in our brain, too much to get into right now, and it causes certain neurotransmitters to become depleted, resulting in all but the most primitive parts of our brains to shut down, plus the organism releases a hormone that stimulates the primitive regions of the brain, and it increases the production of testosterone, hence all the aggression. There's a little funny banter about why Daniel and Tilk seem to be, as of yet, unaffected. And Hammond seems to now fully realize that, oh shit, they probably brought a new plague back through the gate, which shows that yes, gay travel can be very dangerous when you go out exploring other planets, and he orders the mountain to be sealed off. And I love, despite of how heavy this scene is, where he even orders them to shoot anyone on site that tries to leave the mountain because it's that serious, that this is still a small moment surrounded by so many funny moments. For instance, Dr. Fraser continues to keep calling Tilk Mr. Tilk. It's so adorable. I love her. Against all odds and extensive exposure, Daniel and Tilk's blood comes back clean, which then raises the question, why? Suggests going back to the planet to uncover, possibly discover a way to fight the virus. And Dr. Hammond instructs the doctor to teach Daniel and Tilk how to draw blood. As they are about to go through the gate, we see that Daniel sneezes, which apparently is important. Once Daniel and Tilk arrive on the planet, they find Minosha. She is afflicted, and Daniel is affronted that they dumped her on the dark side. Tilk points out, we dumped them in a room. Is Daniel trying to valiantly defend that by stating, for their own protection, Tilk accurately calls him out on it that we do it for everyone else's protection. Thankfully, Daniel recognizes his truth and concedes to that point, and he equates the treatment of sick people to how they used to treat lepers by ditching them in a leper colony. Daniel wants to take Minosha with them, Tilk advises against it. Once Daniel stands up holding Minosha, they discover that they are surrounded. Tilk fires his gun, but Daniel gets overrun before he gets the opportunity to put Minosha down and draw his own gun. And thus, Daniel is lost. Back on Earth, we learn that General Hammond now too has fallen victim to the virus. He is being led into Colonel O'Neill's room in a straitjacket. Frank Fraser, trying to make small talk, explains to O'Neill that they are now overrun by infections, so they have to bunk up. Roomies! O'Neill is heavily sedated. We discover that when you sedate someone, you apparently starve the organism a little bit, which allows the personality of the person to resurface a little. O'Neill offers himself up, ever the rescuer, for experimentation in the hopes to find a cure. Meanwhile, we see that Tilk has arrived in the Land of Light and asks for their help to save both Daniel and Melosha. They order him to leave. Tilk asks if he at least could have their blood. The woman is now insulted and demands that he leaves upon their return. Now that they have vacated the room, they leave Tilk alone with their beefy, beefy bodyguards. That allows Tilk to single-handedly knock them the fuck out and is thus presented with the perfect opportunity to complete his mission and to take some blood home with him. And to that, all I can say is, way to go, Mr. Tilk! Back in the infirmary, Tilk learns that Carter was stabbed by her roommate, but luckily it's only superficial. And unexpectedly, we get a quite a moving scene where Tilk goes to O'Neill to confess that he lost Daniel Jackson on the dark side of the planet. While they're having their sit-down, the doc comes in and says, I have something. She tested the blood and discovered that the untouched have very little histamine in their blood. She further explains that both she and Daniel take antihistamines due to severe allergies, hence all of Daniel Jackson's incessant sneezing. And while he 
he's a nerd and nerds have allergies. I do appreciate that they now also added the doc with allergies, but then again, for her to remain sane enough to find this cure in the first place, there had to be a reason for her to not also become infected. So, yeah, okay, kind of mitigates the nerd shaming there a little. Knowing this, she now wants to try a particular treatment that starves the histamine in their blood. O'Neill again volunteers. She tells him, though, that the dose required to starve the histamine in his blood could be harmful. Don't matter, O'Neill still volunteers. Next, we get my absolute favorite scene of this entire episode. O'Neill bangs on the door while Tilk is sitting outside waiting to see if the treatment takes effect. And as Tilk opens the little peephole to check on O'Neill, O'Neill responds with, Lucy, I'm home. And of course, that reference just flies straight over Tilk's head because he has no idea about the Earth idioms. And they have a little banter back and forth of Tilk hesitating to open the door because clearly O'Neill is not recognizing him. So this, it always makes me laugh. And again, to the point where O'Neill really actually genuinely gets annoyed and orders Tilk to open the door. Though Tilk clearly is still not entirely convinced, he lets O'Neill out. Shortly thereafter, we see them dialing the gate and we see General Hammond back in his uniform. We see that everyone is now cured and they all go back to the land of, well, dark and light to go and rescue Daniel. And in the land of the dark, they find him with Melosha and they both have completely converted to primal prehistoric characteristics and behaviors. Carter answers our question by saying, I guess his antihistamine were off because previously we stated that Daniel seemingly was unaffected, not even infected. However, now he has been gone for such an extended period of time without his medication that he has fallen victim to the infection just like the rest of them. They brought tranquilizer guns to incapacitate everyone and dose everyone with the medication and Daniel seemingly appears to have hooked up with Melosha which makes O'Neill then say Daniel you dog keep this up you'll have a girl on every planet and that just he's not wrong and also oh my god this is so Captain Kirk from Star Trek. We have Tilk who don't understand references like Castiel and Supernatural and now we have a girl on every planet just like Captain Kirk. Yeah gotta love sci-fi. Why tamper with a winning formula? We see the team, including Till carrying Daniel, enter the city. And the woman immediately says, Leave now! You can't bring the touched here. The team explains that they have found a cure. They can save both Melosha and anyone else that has fallen to the curse. Tuplo accepts this by inviting them to sit down and explain. He instructs them to put Daniel in the protective circle with the big bullheads, which allows for a beautiful shot of Michael Shanks, who plays Dr. Daniel Jackson from above. While the team is talking with the high counselor Tuplo and the woman, we suddenly hear Daniel call out for Jack. And they quickly determined, yeah, yeah, he back. The people from the Land of Light ask them, if you are not gods, how could you have lifted the curse? Resulting in, again, them believing that the SG team are gods, and round and round we go. His chief teams accompany the untouched to the edge of the forest, where the dark side merges with the land of light. Right around the time previously touched are now emerging from the forest, looking all homo sapien again, including Melosha. So it's a reunion! With a job well done, the team walks back either to the gate or to the city, and Carter takes this opportunity to apologize to O'Neill for her earlier behavior, claiming that she wasn't herself. O'Neill insists that he doesn't remember he was infected as well. Carter is temporarily relieved until O'Neill asks how that stab wound is healing, and Carter says, well, with a little luck, there will be no scar, and O'Neill responds with, good, if you don't heal properly, you'll never wear that sweet little tank top number again. So, oh yeah, he remembers.
And thus we have reached the end of this episode. Though there clearly was some heavy-duty topic here to discuss and some misconceptions to be truth-bombed, overall, this episode was really what we needed after that awful, awful Emancipation episode because this episode was full of laughter, funny banter, just true Stargate SG-1 magic, more than enough to, yes, make me review this episode as a goodie. Quite possibly even one of my favorites of the first season. Next up is the sixth episode of the first season called The First Commandment, where we meet one of Carter's exes. I do hope to see you there!